afternoon, you're listening to 90.7 FM, KALX. I'm Frank Ling, and this is Berkeley Grocks. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, the man from the street, Vikram Kulkarni, on geotechnical engineering. In addition, we'll be joined by Dr. Gottfried from the Union of Concerned Scientists on scientific distortion. Also, we'll find out what happens when argon is compressed. So stay tuned for all of this, plus the world-famous question of the week, coming right up here on the Berkeley Grocks Science Show. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee, the voice of patriotism. Which country? How about the country of science? Can we establish such a country? I would move there in an instant. (laughs) Build walls, though. (laughs) I thought we were trying to mend fences. Uh, Okay. So, Charles, do you think killers are born or are they learned? I think you can learn to be a born killer. Okay. And here's our animal of the week. I've been waiting a whole week for the animal fact of the week. The shark. It is a natural born killer. (laughs) And it turns out that even when they're embryos, they start chewing each other out until only one remain, and that's the one that's born. Much like the Highlander. <laughs> yes. It came as a nasty surprise. Some marine biologists were investigating the embryo, and one of them bit the uh, biologist. Mistaking him for a competitor, I bet. I-, I guess so, even though they're like tiny, cute <laughs> shark. It's a tough environment, I guess. So speaking of killers, uh, here's the real killer. <laughs> Closing up the animal fact of the week. Moving on to pathogens. <laughs> In California, we have the serious problem with the uh, sudden oak death syndrome caused from a fungus, and researchers have been trying to figure out where it came from, and apparently it comes from the same family as the golden brown algae, diatoms, and kelp. What they were trying to figure out is how, when they acquired their photosynthetic abilities, it turns out these pathogens were originally benign, and they were originally uh, photosynthetic creatures. They lost that ability, and in recent years, they gained the ability to become pathogens to these trees. So do they know what spurred this change on? They don't know for sure, but this is actually the first study of any kind where they were able to infer gene function from the actual evolutionary analysis. And what this means is that they'll be able to find what are the actual proteins linked with the damage of the plant host. And so this will give them a better ability to develop treatments against these types of diseases. This was reported in the September 1st issue of Science. Well, now it's time for the segment on Berkeley Grox, where we hear from the man on the street. And we dragged a random man off the street, in fact. We just met him, like, what, five minutes ago? Five minutes ago. And in front of the Lavarita. Yes. Sir, what is your name? My name is Vikram Kulkarni. I was a strange person when I was born, so my mom thought, strange name for strange boy. 
what is Vikram mean? Uh, it's I think achievement, great, great achievement. I think we found the right one. <laughs> uh, deep thoughts. I didn't know that, but <laughs> all right. For those of you just tuning in, Vikram has joined us again He's on the program some time back though. And uh, at that time, you were a geotechnical engineer. You're still a geotechnical engineer. Yes, I still am a geotechnical. Engineer. I thought you were trying to get out of geotechnical engineering. Yes, but the man has sucked me back in. <laughs> so, what exactly is geotechnical engineering? I do subsurface design. I'm a civil engineer. I do foundation design. And colloquially, I'm called a dirt bag, which means I bag dirt. I'm not a dirt bag in reality. I bag dirt, which means I sample soil. And I try to get some parameters with which I can develop some foundation design. So tell us, our homes, are they really stable? Doesn't the ground move over time and the foundation is going to crack up anyways? No, it can be engineered to not crack up. It's not 100% certainty, but there's pretty good certainty with current knowledge that you can have a well-designed home. Usually if you're on hillsides or cliffsides somewhere in California, yes, it's going to be more difficult. But so otherwise, all those rains, it should I mean, be better. Doesn't that soften the soil and like, cause it to get kind of soft and like, you know, one side of your house might start to... Yes, I mean, you know, a lot of factors that can affect it, and you can design against that. Definitely, a lot of these factors are considered, but they're nothing that new. So, I mean, you know, we should have figured them out by now. And being nature, it's nothing is 100% certain, but you can design it within a reasonable probability of uh, If a client comes up to you and says, I want to build my house on the side of this quicksand hill, do you just tell him it can't be done? Uh, no, because he's a client. <laughs> no, no, we are bound by laws. We can't tell him junk like that, but we will usually make him aware of the risks. But there are often rich people who want to take the risks and they will pay good money for it. Hmm. And so you end up improving areas around the house, on occasion entire cliff sides, because everybody wants a view in California and that's how it is. So tell us, are the buildings in California up to code in terms of surviving an earthquake? If there's a big one, will most of us still make it okay? I will say this, if, if you're going to live in earthquake country, I would live in California. It has pretty good codes, and I think all over the world, there are pretty good codes. They're followed much better in California than anywhere else. So, like I said, it, still a few people are going to die, but the likelihood is going to be much lower. Right. Well, yeah, in China, there are codes, but... Uh, <laughs> That's right. They're just there on paper. They use soda cans for foundation, right? <laughs> they're, if they're lucky. <laughs> so what does it take to become a geotechnical engineer, and uh, would you recommend more people go into this profession? Yes, more people must go into engineering. I mean, you know, everybody's a civil engineer. All geotechnical engineers and their bachelor's degrees are civil engineers, and then different people specialize in civil engineering being as broad as... We need more parking lots. We need many more parking lots. Yeah, no, I mean, geotechnical engineers do a lot of exciting things, especially in California. We do a lot of earthquake engineering. A lot of my work is earthquake engineering. A lot of offshore work. Very much interesting, especially if you're even into geology, mapping, geography, a lot of applied fields, numerical modeling, which is now part of all engineering these days, a lot of coding computers. So you get a good cross-section of a lot of different things, but you should be interested in soil mechanics, obviously being the core backbone of geotechnical engineering. That aptitude would definitely help. Hmm. You also have to like dirt. Yes. <laughs> like I said, we bag dirt. Yeah. So what do you think about the new span they're having for the Bay Bridge? you think that's going to be a lot safer than what they have right now? That's definitely the plan. As you know, the east span is completely being replaced, and the west span has already been retrofitted. They say half, 50% or so has been retrofitted. Mm -hmm. And this weekend is the big demolition of one of the ramps, and so that's why we have the closure on the Bay mm -hmm. Bridge. Mm -hmm. So that work is going on. 
think 2009 is when the west span is going to be completely retrofitted and i'm not so sure of the east span when that bridge is going to be complete but i think it's somewhere like that 2009 so will you have any part to do with that bridge construction my company did i wasn't <laughs> part of it <laughs> yeah my company was actually part of the eastern span the complete replacement it's actually some of that design is pretty out of this world some of uh. huge pilings some of the foundations are 300 feet deep below the ocean floor where you're seeing so a lot of things go under that ground that nobody ever right. sees so is that where the bedrock is about and the, the bedrock yeah. is about 250 to 300 feet and right. that's some piles are not even going all the way to bedrock but many are they <laughs> well, they that's encouraging <laughs> yeah, it's it's not so bad as it sounds they get the capacity from the friction where okay, at that yeah, point yeah. getting capacity from the bedrock is pointless all right so but those piles are impressive these are like some of the piles are 8 feet to 10 feet in diameter it's uh, open ended steel pipes and they drive it with these huge pile driving hammers i mean you have to see the size of these things to believe them so very impressive construction oh wow so what does it take to actually create these pilings do you have to compact the dirt itself no no it's it's like a nail hit with a hammer these since these are huge piles much bigger than what typically are hmm. they have a vibratory component to it as well so there are added vibrations along with a huge diesel hammer that basically pounds these things into the ground and they are being steel pipes welded on these are sections that keep getting welded on as they keep driving them down so the bar the span between the east bay and san francisco it goes underwater what kind of concrete thickness do you need to have stable tunnel and is it safe under an earthquake the bart is the bart is doing its own seismic improvement program as well and actually my company is partly working on the improvement for the tube the transbay oh. tube mm-hmm. the transbay tube is tricky it, it's actually technically just sitting on the floor of the bay it's barely buried in the bay so it's not technically mm-hmm. a tunnel under the bay they created a tube by That's dropping silly. sections nice. just burying them so the top of the tube coincides with the bottom floor of the bay mm-hmm. so it it was actually a trench inside the bottom it has its own unique seismic problems but mm. it's more flexible as a result so it has more power to an earthquake but uh, after the SIP the seismic improvement program is complete for the bar supposed to withstand an 8.0 on the San Andreas oh wow nice. okay so In terms of the future for geotechnical engineering, do you foresee like massive superstructures being built underground cities, like enormous buildings holding like tens uh, or hundreds of thousands of people? There is all sorts of grand plans going on all along the world. Actually, there is some of the coolest crazy structures nowadays are coming up in Asia. Very amazing underground structures. There is a lot of new construction in Hong Kong and places like that which are very amazing, but I would refer listeners to the AC magazine. They come up with these amazing articles. anybody's interested should go to the website or check out the magazines there in the physical sciences library that's probably got to be the most fascinating word from the man on the street we've ever had <laughs> and he's smart <laughs> well uh, thanks for joining well, us thanks so much for coming oh <laughs> uh, well thank you and this is berkeley grox you're listening to here on 90.7 fm kalx in a few moments dr kurt godfrey joins us to talk about science distortion so stay tuned
Berkeley Rocks. Well, since the beginning of history, the relationship between science and government has been fairly neutral. While science has been, to some extent, at the whim of certain politics, for the most part, the government has respected scientists, their opinions, and their suggestions. But in today's climate, there has been enormous hostility between these two camps. Joining us today to talk about some of these issues is Professor Kurt Gottfried from Cornell University. He's Professor of Physics, the co-founder of the Union of Concerned Scientists, and the current chair. Uh, Professor Gottfried, thanks so much for joining us here today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So first of all, could you tell us who or you know, what exactly is the uh, Union of Concerned Scientists? Well, the Union of Concerned Scientists is a nonprofit, an NGO, uh, that uh, has been in existence now for over 30 years, well over 30 years and uh, works on issues where science and public policies uh, interact, uh, such as in nuclear, originally in uh, nuclear weapons, uh, nuclear power plant safety, uh, climate change, uh, and uh, vehicle uh, modernization, energy policies, a variety of issues where uh, science is fundamental to forming policy and uh, uh, and the scientific community has opinions as to what should and shouldn't be done. And I understand um, the group originally was founded to uh, discuss the issues involved with nuclear proliferation. Well, and nuclear arms race, more the buildup of nuclear weapons during the Cold War, and uh, there was the big original issue, the attempt by the uh, first the Johnson and then the Bush, uh, the Nixon administration to uh, build a missile defense, which uh, the science, uh, many people in the science community thought uh, would just stoke the arms race. Eventually, the Nixon uh, and Kissinger came to recognize that was true, and they negotiated an important uh, treaty with the Soviet Union. So that was the uh, issue that we first worked on back in the late late 60s. Today, uh, I, I guess the most prominent issue is related to uh, climate change, uh, global warming, and um, the UCS has certainly taken a lead in um, in these discussions. Among scientists, there is a concern that the administration is distorting many of the facts concerning uh, climate change. What is UCS's stance on this? Well, uh, yes, UCS has been very much involved with revealing to the media and the public that the administration has engaged in a systematic distortion uh, of information and knowledge about climate change. It has uh, censored uh, reports produced by its own scientists. It has uh, misrepresented the knowledge about climate change. It has continued till, really till now, basically, to uh, the president has often said that uh, while it's clear that we have global warming, it's still not clear whether human beings are responsible for it. Uh, and uh, this has been uh, this kind of stance towards climate change, a denial, if you wish, of climate of the human impact on climate change, has been uh, chronic in administration. Uh, statements and policies and refusal to even consider policies. Recently, President Bush has had some utterances saying that um, climate change is a serious issue and that action is needed. Is he just paying lip service? Well, at the moment, yes, he has, he has changed his tone a little bit of late, but he's still pushing the, the notion that it's too expensive to deal with climate change, 
I think the legs have been cut out from under uh, the administration and its supporters by the new report brought out by the British government, which makes the point, which I think has been made by many people, uh, but makes it in very great detail after a very extensive study. The British government has now, with Prime Minister Blair announcing the result, that, uh, that it, the cost of dealing with climate change is smaller, much smaller than the cost, the damages that would be produced by not dealing with it. That it's not good enough to just say it's going to be very expensive to deal with climate change and totally ignore what would happen if you don't deal with it. And the British government now has made it clear with high authority that uh, it is stupid, basically, to uh, not try to deal with climate change on the assumption that it's going to be ex that it's going to be costly. In fact, the cost that they the British government uh, has now announced is, is rather modest at the level of 1% of uh, gross domestic product globally. But it also has emphasized that we must get started now, quickly, if, we're have, uh, if we are not to lose the opportunity to, to mitigate. We can't stop climate change, but we can mitigate its consequences. And so tying uh, climate change with the nuclear issue, um, in recent year, years there has been uh, little attention to uh, the arms race, but uh, certainly there's, um, there's a voice out there for nuclear power to address some of these emissions issues. What are your views on um, nuclear power? Well, uh, nuclear power has the virtue of being uh, a power source that does not produce uh, uh, climate uh, greenhouse gases and therefore would not uh, uh, add to the problems we have with climate change. It, of, uh, it is of course not the only technology that can help us with the climate uh, issue. Uh, in contrast to all the others, it has very inher it has unique dangers that have to be taken account of, uh, namely the danger of a nuclear explosion uh, as a consequence of somebody getting hold of nuclear weapons materials from the nuclear power complex in one country or another. Uh, but the, all that being said, and recognizing the dangers of nuclear power, uh, it's uh, my belief is, uh, that the, the risk of climate change is so great that nuclear power has to be considered as one of the uh, technologies that has to be carefully, sensibly uh, looked at. It's not a silver bullet, like many people in the administration seem to be saying, and in some parts of industry, it's not, it's not a silver bullet. It can only be a s relatively small factor in dealing with the climate change problem, and furthermore, it's not a factor that we can field very quickly. It'll take a good 15, 20 years to really have a major impact on the whole, uh, uh, on the whole energy uh, situation uh, uh, from uh, nuclear power. Can, is not a quick, easy solution, but we do have to consider it, especially in the longer run, as, uh, as one of the components in dealing with climate change. And so with regard to the energy issue uh, in the U.S. and certainly for many countries, um, the energy infrastructure is highly centralized. In fact, this makes it very difficult for changes to occur. Do you feel that uh, there needs to be more decentralization? Uh, do you feel that there'll be more uh, authority given to locals in terms of deciding how to address their own um, energy sources? I th I'm aware that a lot can be done by decentralization. I don't know, quite frankly. I'm not sure I can answer that question uh, knowledgeably, uh, whether when we're talking about reducing 
uh, carbon by 80% or something, whether that can be done by just uh, local initiatives, although perhaps uh, it can be encouraged by, by local initiatives. For example, if we're going to use nuclear power, that's not a local thing. We need to really improve our whole nationwide electricity grid so that people who generate power locally and don't need it all can put it back into the grid. Mm -hmm. So I, I think what's probably needed is a sophisticated, you know, a coherent policy which mixes private initiative, the localized private initiative with a coherent national policy and for that matter a coherent international policy because climate change is an international problem. If we solve the problem right here in the United States or in California that doesn't solve the problem. And so clearly one of the big issues is how do we get China and India to, uh, to move to, uh, to energy policies which are not dangerous for climate change. At the moment, uh, India and China are both enlarging their energy uh, sectors dramatically, and at the moment they are not doing so uh, yet in a way that is climate friendly. But uh, I am personally optimistic that they can be induced to do that, uh, but I think it's also essential that the United States play a lead role. Uh, we, the, uh, we have the responsibility to do so, uh, not because we're the largest the uh, most powerful state, but because we have put more greenhouse gas up there that's up there now than anybody else. And certainly in encouraging these developing uh, regions to uh, adopt new technologies, there are certain mechanisms, for example, the uh, clean development mechanism and the flexible mechanisms, which have been uh, proposed under Kyoto Protocol, but yet there has actually been very little done in terms of these measures. You know, what do you foresee as the uh, the future mechanism for, uh, for U.S. to show a greater leadership role? Well, I think the first thing that has to happen, either at the ballot box or uh, before the next presidential election, I mean, the president, of course, is in a unique position to change policy. I mean, it's like Nixon going to China. Nixon could go to China, uh, which a Democratic president could not probably have done, and to open the door to better relations with China. So, in a way, uh, if Bush were to uh, recognize that he has an opportunity to lead in a positive direction, uh, he could do so. If not, which is, uh, that would be surprising, but not impossible, strange things happen. Uh, uh, and uh, one might hope that he would do that. He would be in a strong position to do it. If not, then uh, the next president will have to do so. I think presidential leadership in this country is, is, ra is really almost indispensable. It may be not totally indispensable, but I think it is close to indispensable. So we need a a strong presidential leadership that can swing Congress behind him or her and uh, uh, really play a lead role. Leadership is required. There are a lot of people, a lot of industries, a lot of corporations that have recognized very well that climate change is something that must be dealt with. They just don't want to step out in front and then uh, find that their individual uh, interests are damaged by taking the lead. Only the government at the level of the White House can really take the major step forward and then I think a lot of people will fall into step behind them. And yet when you talk to Americans, climate change does not even come in terms of the first 10 uh, most pressing issues for them and without 
you know, broad public support, it seems like we would not have the leadership to make it happen. What should we do in order to get the uh, the public more informed about well, these I issues? Well, I think uh, I think it's changing. I think it's changing. I mean, I think, of course, the, at the moment, the public, quite understandably, is focused on Iraq uh, as a current burning issue. But uh, just this, just a little while ago, I mean, today, before you came in for this interview, I got an email. Uh, from that MIT has come out, some people at MIT came out with a new poll showing that amongst environmental issues, climate change is by far the most serious one in public opinion. Mm -hmm. Now, it's also true that environmental issues are not at the top of people's uh, concerns. So, well, one has to do what uh, organizations like UCS have been doing for a long time, public education. I think, uh, I think actually things have changed. The last year has seen a considerable change in awareness of the seriousness of climate, of global warming. I think people, many people now know that what they observe in their backyard or when they go out skiing and find there isn't much snow, uh, that uh, what they're seeing is not just some fluke event, but is in fact part of a pattern. And uh, people are aware that uh, the ice is melting in Greenland, and there's a lot of tele television news now on climate issues, which was not true as, as recently as a year ago. So I think things will change. I think they are changing. I think the, the, the public's receptivity to dealing with climate change is on the upswing. So I guess we are running a little bit out of time here. Um, are there any last words you'd like to add about uh, UCS or about yourself? About myself? Certainly not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad to be in Berkeley. I always love coming to Berkeley. I have a lot of friends. Here. I've been coming to Berkeley off and on for since before you were born, <laughs> and the uh, program here that I'm visiting, the energy program, is a very important and impressive program. And uh, California is really, as is frequently the case, leading, is leading the way towards a more hopeful future. The action taken last year by, uh, this year by uh, Governor Schwarzenegger, which UCS had a significant role in developing is really very promising and is one of the things that makes me feel things are really changing. I think a year ago I would have thought that was totally out of the question that something like the Schwarzenegger, the move by the California government to deal with climate change, I would have thought that never, that's not going to happen for another 10 or 15 years, so it's happened. Well, Professor Gottfried, uh, it's been an inspiration. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And we were just talking to Professor Kurt Gottfried from the Union of Concerned Scientists. For more information, check out their website at www.ucs.org. This is Berkeley Grox you're listening to here on 90.7 FM. In a few moments, we'll find out what happens when argon gas is compressed. So stay tuned.
right, and now it's uh, our man off the street, uh, Vikram Kulkarni. He'll be giving the answer to last week's question of the week. Vikram? Last week's question was, what happens to argon gas when it's rapidly compressed? And the answer is that it gives out a fluorescent blue light. And basically, that has to do with electrons dropping from a higher energy state to a lower energy state and thus releasing energy in the process. And now it's Stephen Hawking with question of the week. Superfluid helium-3, what is it? What is it? If you know the answer, think you know the answer, email us at grox at grox at grox at hotmail.com. You won't win anything, but your fluids might be super. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music. Mm-hmm.